halter is much smaller than the wings. Um, and, you know, the halt, the wing is a, you know, broad, flat plate. And so, you know, it's, it's made of a thin membrane. You know, it's, it's, it's strong for its size and stiff for its size, but still rather delicate. Um, whereas the halter is, is rather short and stumpy and in some flies kind of tucked in and relatively protected. So the amount of damage that the halter experiences compared to the wing is likely much, much less. Um, so even though flies may be able to, to detect bite irritations and or maneuver with just one halter, it's unlikely that they experience much halter damage. If you take a bee and you rotate it around, um, and basically have it experience artificial wing damage, you know, the, that joint allows for flexion that reduces damage because you can stiffen that joint and then increase the damage that's experienced. Um, so in the case of flies, you know, they don't have the benefit of this resolent in their wing. So they'll experience wing damage, you know, at the tips. And that will obviously, or uh, a sort of natural consequence of that is that now one wing may experience more damage than the other. And so the fly, that would result in, you know, kind of instabilities or could result in instabilities because of the asymmetries of the wing loading and the aerodynamic forces produced by the wing. define myself i think of myself as someone who's at the interface of neuroscience um biomechanics which is using physics and engineering tools applied to biological systems um with a you know an interest or at least some exposure to engineering and thinking about engineered systems and i'm a p assistant professor of neuroscience at princeton neuroscience institute at princeton university so maybe let's go firstly before going uh, to more details. Also, I saw you doing science communication and science for museum. Can you tell me more about that? Because I think it's interesting that you do both things, science communication and then, yeah. So yeah, I've spent a, I spent um, a fair bit of time doing science communication to um, kind of either what you what some people may call like lay audiences or what I'd probably more typically call doing informal science education, and that started. Started in earnest right after I finished college. I worked at a science museum, the Museum of Science in Boston. That was my first job out of college, and I did live programs. So I did shows on the weather, on animals that you'd find in the Charles River right outside of the museum, um, a show on movie monsters, and you know, kind of brain illusions and all these kinds of things. And for me, it was a really great experience to, because I got to interact with such a broad range of people and show them all the sort of different ways that science connects with their lives in different ways, different types of science connect with their lives. Um, and also just, you know, how, how, how that scientific thinking kind of informs a lot of what we do, even if it isn't necessarily applied directly to a scientific problem. So that was kind of the start. And then, um, when I was in graduate school, I went to the University of Washington in Seattle for graduate school. And after, or during the start of the middle of my, I think my second year in graduate school, I started doing this program that Pacific Science Center has called a science communication fellowship. And so what that ended up meaning is that I not only learned about how to communicate my work in an informal manner, which I had a little bit of practice with, but it also meant that I developed um, hands-on um, exhibitions of my work or, or problems related to my work that I would take to Pacific Science Center um, I did it about once a month and that was again an, a really great experience for being able to interact with you know people 
you know, kids as young as, you know, three or four years old, all the way up to, you know, senior citizens and just having the experience of interacting with all sorts of different people. Um, it was a lot of fun and just a nice way to show the work that I do because, you know, for so much of the work that we do, it can be kind of cloistered off in, in academia. So it was a nice way to, to give people exposure to, you know, what is it that a scientist, a research scientist does and what are, what are the kinds of problems that we think about? Um, and then, you know, more recently, <laughs> excuse me, you know, some of that's kind of transformed into doing things like podcasts like this um, and explaining my work, you know, for an even broader audience, um, but also doing things like, I, you know, um, back in February of this year, I went back to Museum of Science and gave a, another informal talk. And so it was a nice way to kind of bring everything full circle in terms of you know, that was my first job after college. And now I'm talking about the work that I do here. Um, and, you know, again, doing it for a, a really diverse audience in terms of age and background and, and just exposure to different, different types of science and different ways of thinking. Interesting. So we ask you what got you interested or intrigued in what you do, especially in your lab. Can you tell me about the research questions or the most challenging question that you feel so passionate about and you want to solve with your group. That's maybe the first thing you want to know. What are the questions? Yeah, so my lab focuses on insect flight um, and we focus on fly flight. And we there are a couple of ways that we think about this problem. One is the role of timing in the nervous system because flies have to execute different kinds of maneuvers you know, in less time that takes us to blink our eyes. So they really have a short time window to collect information and then turn it into um, change of wing motion so that they can change their flight trajectory. So so one of the big questions, one of the things that motivates the work in our lab is thinking about timing at the level of the sensory system. So how does the sensory system take in information about the environment and rapidly turn it into a signal for um, for the animal that's relevant to to a rapid behavior but also from the level of the motor system, because we also understand that muscles, some muscles rely on um, really precise timing to determine how they function in the context of locomotion. So we think about timing in from both kind of ends of that spectrum in one organism. Another, another problem that we think about is um, the role of kind of maps in sensory systems, because um, a lot of sensory systems, especially especially systems that um, help an animal execute rapid behaviors really um, have to have to really efficiently collect and turn that turn that information about the environment into um, a relevant signal really quickly so you, that what that means is that the animal and the nervous system does not have a lot of time for <laughs> collecting a signal and doing a lot of processing on it and then setting it to, um, you know, the effector muscles. So we think a lot about how information may be, and how evolution may have shaped, um, shaped how information is routed through, through the sensory system to control a behavior. So those are the two major questions that the lab is focusing on. And to go back to sort of how I got into this. So, I mean, so when I when I started in college, I knew that I wanted to be a, a biologist, or I, I was interested in biology, but I didn't really know what that meant, to be honest. Um, and actually, my my first year, there was a talk. I went to a really small liberal arts college um, outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but um, my near near the end of my freshman year, there was a guest speaker who who came from an institution that did a lot more research. And that was my first time really understanding what a professor did. And, and that really got me interested in wanting to pursue research in the first place. Um, and that person happened is a former, is a former mentor of mine now. Like, you know, that was, that was 18 years ago that, that I experienced that. And then, you know, 10 years later I was working in his lab. Um, so it's funny how, again, life can kind of come full circle. But the thing that really interested me about his work, his name is Michael Dickinson, he's at uh, California Institute of Technology, Caltech. The thing that interested me about 
his work um was this was how it interfaced with with it wasn't just biology it wasn't just engineering it wasn't just neuroscience it was all those things all at once and each each field was informing the other to tell a bigger story and that for me that was that was really intriguing in terms of the power of research or the ability to become an expert what it meant to become an expert in something was not just you know having just a narrow focus although you know as your training can be that but then to see how how you can tell a broader story that relates all sorts of different different ideas together um to tell a coherent narrative that was really appealing to me um and so as i as i went through college you know i, I tried to out research i tried different things out um, by my junior year of college i took a course on biomechanics um so again using using physics and engineering tools applied to biological systems and mostly excuse me um you know when i say that i mean like animal systems so thinking about muscle thinking about you know how animals deal with wave swept environments thinking about flight and swimming thinking about you know the fluid mechanics involved in those problems um so for me that was that was again a nice kind of fit for the way I like to think about the world. And as I began to think about going to graduate school, what I wanted to do is try and take that interest I had in biomechanics and kind of ground it in some other field, right? And there are a lot of ways that you can think about that, right? You can think about biomechanics of development. <laughs> Excuse me. I mean, you think about biomechanics of different aspects of physiology. And what I settled on just because of, you know, the kind of, papers and problems that I found myself coming back to over and over again was neuroscience and specifically insect flight. Um, and so for me, it seemed like that was the, that was the best way for, for me to pursue a career research was kind of trying to marry these two fields in the specific problem, um, and turn into a, you know, like I said, a, a bigger, more coherent narrative. Very impressive. Maybe I want to ask you about the fly and insect here. When you look about the design, because I think the, the question I want to ask you, how studying such system could help out in the design of robotics or self-robotics in that case. What are things you're seeing maybe strengths or vulnerability in the user design of fly? And once it's a question, sometimes you see they are vulnerable. Sometimes it could be damaged. If someone just hit them, they just, this is me. I don't know when you see about the design in general, before going to the material or muscles or morphology, if the apply all these things, but maybe overall view about the weakness and strengths of the design from evolutionary point of the flies. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, flies are amazingly resilient animals because they can occupy. One of the reasons for that is they occupy so many different uh, ecological niches, right? They are pollinators. They are detrivores, they are predators, they are, they can be, you know, depending on the, how you think about it in terms of their scale, they are migratory animals. They, you know, they occupy a huge range of niches. And, you know, I would argue one of the reasons for that is because of their really impressive ability to fly. Um, and so, so that, that you know, that, intersects well with some of the questions that my lab asked. So one of the reasons that, um, excuse me, we think of flies as being so, so maneuverable and such stable flyers, um, is that they, unlike most flying insects, which have four, um, lift producing wings, um, flies have two wings, they're four wings produce aerodynamic lift and their hind wings have been transformed into these structures that kind of look like a ball on a stick called the halter. And some of the work that, that I've done and that we're working on, um, kind of demonstrates that the halter, one of the, one of the things that makes the halter really impressive is that it's acts as a gyroscopic structure detecting body rotations. And that's really helpful for um, a flying animal because that allows, and it helps trigger a number of really fast reflexes. So one of the reasons that's so helpful for a flying animal is that way it can remain stable um, in light of, you know, a wind gust or in case there's wing damage that 
that accumulates over an animal's lifespan. In addition, because the halteers evolved from the hind wing, it has sort of muscles associated with it, and those muscles get um, information from the sensory system, particularly the visual system, but also from the halteer itself, because the halteer is a primarily or solely a mechanosensory structure. Um, so what that means and what we've been finding is that um, the halteer is not just a sort of passive gyroscopic sensor. Um, instead, it's dynamically controlled by the brain. <clears throat> that may allow flies to actually um, be more maneuverable because now the fly can control the halteer, which controls these rapid flight behaviors, helps control these rapid flight behaviors. So now if the fly wants to execute a turn, um, it can send signals to the wings and halteers, but the connection to the, from the halteer to the wing is so strong that you can override any sort of kind of normal kind of stability mode that the fly has to execute a turn. And in addition, the halteer also helps the fly remain stable because if the body gets rotated in some way, the halteer uh, experiences what's called the Coriolis force, and that triggers a number of reflexes um, that keep the fly stable. So for me, the way I think about what makes flies so impressive is that the evolution of the structure of the halteer uh, allows flies to be both stable and maneuverable. And typically in in biology, and particularly when thinking about locomotion, we think of those as being a trade-off where an animal can either be stable or it can be maneuverable. Like a good example of this are, you know, if you think about other flying animals like birds. So, excuse me, if you think about like say an albatross it has very huge wings and it can glide really well and it's very, very stable, but you don't think of it as being super maneuverable. Whereas, um, Something like a hummingbird is very, very maneuverable and really tight, but you know you think of it as being easily kind of knocked off course by like a strong wind gust. But what I think makes flies really impressive compared to other flying insects in particular is that the halteer allows them to basically negate this trade-off. And what that also means is then flies, because they're so maneuverable and so stable, they can occupy a wealth of niche niches, ecological niches. Um, so that, so that they can do things like, in addition to all the things they mentioned about being pollinators and detrivores and migratory animals, they can also, you know, be like, you have hoverflies that are bee mimics, right? They, they not only just look like a, a bumblebee or a honeybee, but they also kind of, the way that they fly mimics that as well, right? Um, and so that ability to <laughs> occupy a, a lot of niches is aided by the evolution of the halter. Now, obviously there are a lot of other things that flies have, like, their visual system is is really, really impressive in terms of speed at which it processes information. And that's a huge area of research. You know, fly vision is a huge area of research also because um, some of the parallels it has with the vertebrate visual system um, and, you know, thinking about the muscle physiology, you know, the animals I work on, Drosophila melanogaster, they beat their wings, you know, 200 to 250 times a second, which means that to control a given wing stroke, they really only have a five millisecond window to to um, control when a muscle turns on or if it turns on. Um, so specifically, you think about the wing steering muscles there. Um, but that means that those muscles have to have a lot of um, different specializations to turn on so fast and be able to turn off um, very quickly as well. And so, you know, there's one of the reasons for me that fly fly is so is so fascinating is that you delve into one aspect of the problem and you start to see that it relates to all these sort of different all these sort of different problems that are interconnected and that you wouldn't un, you can't understand your problem really just in isolation you really have to think about all these sort of different things you have to think about muscle physiology you have to think about neuroscience you have to think about aerodynamics you don't have to be an expert at all of those but you need to be you know, expose all of them to really build this coherent picture of what's going on. We want to skip over the morphology of the wing, and since you mentioned that you already have two wings, not four, um, can you build the roof morphology here? And also, I'm just curious because you, you mentioned the brain. I saw the Rubendum reflexus. Can you elaborate more about reflexus and the brain sensory connection with the muscle? Can you elaborate more about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, the halt here. In terms of its reflexes, it has 
if you look at the hull tier, it, like I mentioned, it's like sort of a ball in a stick, and it's divided into three major portions. You think of it as having an end knob, a stock, and a base that attaches to the hinge of the animal. So it just beats up and down, swings you know, in an arc of 180 degrees. And if you look on the dorsal and ventral aspects, it has, at least in, in Drosophila, it has four major fields of these, what are effectively strain sensors that are arranged in these highly precise and highly linear rays. And, and so one thing is that the halter has many more of these sensors than the wing. So the wing, you know, and the halter are what we call serially homologous. The halter is evolved from the, from the hind wing. Um, so they both have these sensors that are called companiforms and scylla. It's just that the halter has many more of them. It has roughly three times as many as the wing does. And in addition, the evolution has um, changed their morphology so that you have, in the case of some flies, these highly linear arrays. But in addition, the way that they're aligned relative to the halter's long axis um, differs depending on the field that you're talking about. So if we think about just the dorsal field, dorsal fields, I should say, on the stalk, you have one field and the base, you have another field. The um, the field on the stalk, the those sensors are aligned with the long axis of the halter. And so if you think about the halter beating up and down just during hovering or straight flight, the expectation for now about 75, close to 80 years has been that those sensors should detect in-plane bending that arises from the halter beating up and down. Um, the field that's at the base is those sensors are actually aligned sort of slightly off axis. And the hypothesis, again, for about the same amount of time has been, excuse me, that those sensors are detecting, um, are at least detecting the what, what we think of as the shear strains that result from um, the halter experiencing gyroscopic forces as the body gets rotated. And more recently, um, we, we might also think that that field is uh, transducing signals from from the changes in halter motion that result from the the activity of the halter muscles. So you have these two different kind of ways that the halter may sense the world, which is consistent with the idea that the halter is a multifunctional sensory structure, right? It's not just a gyroscope. It's also um, kind of dynamically controlling the wing stroke. So regardless, though, the halter is one of the largest sensory nerves that the fly has, and it has this large projection through um, the central nervous system, through what's called the ventral nerve cord, up to the brain. But along the way, it has this one synapse connection to some of the wing steering muscles. And and that synapse works really, really quickly. It operates within three to four, mil, three to four milliseconds. So on the order of a single wing stroke. Um, and in addition, it's not just simply uh, a chemical synapse, right, where you just have um, you have the two neurons talking to one another through just chemical signals. It's also what's called an electrotonic synapse, where they're, they sh the neurons are like physically connected, and they just, sh as an actual potential passes um, through the halter nerve or some subset of the halter nerve, that information and that electrical signal is directly shared with um, the wing with at least one of the wing steering muscles. So what that means is that now you have this really fast information so that the the fly can execute a maneuver um, very, very quickly. And it should also be said that I focus a lot on the halter wing connection, but the same thing is also happening with the neck, the, that the flies have no ability to, to really control their, the, their eyes um, independent of their head, um, or at least not a great deal. But what they can do is use information from the halter to stabilize their head, um, which is not that different from our vestibular system keeping our eyes, um, our eyes stable. Um, now, contrast some of this with the wings. So the wings also have these sensors, these companiforms and so about a third of a third as many as on the halter. But they're not arranged in these highly precise arrays. They're they're arranged in these distinct anatomical groups, but they don't have these same kind of arrays. Um, 
but there's still direct connections from the from the sensors to the wing muscles, and actually some sensors also project to the muscles that control the hull tier, um, with a, a similar kind of a similar kind of lag and you know a lot of the same kind of mixed chemical synapse and electrotonic synapse, right? But in, and it makes sense that these would be those would be similar. The the major difference there is one of time scale. So the chemical signal from the wings is much, much stronger than the chemical signal from the hull tier. And the other thing is that, um, you know, the wing signal, if you repetitively stimulate the wing and hull tier in a given fly together and record from one of the wing steering muscles, the hull tier signal will kind of uh, tire out a little bit than the wing will. The wing is the wing can handle this kind of repetition a lot better. Um, but, you know, if you kind of have a difficult, if you, if you change the phase offset of the wing and halter, so typically if the wing is moving up and down like this, the halter is moving 180 degrees out of phase. So if the wing is moving up, the halter is moving down, so on and so forth. But if you change that phase offset, like within a narrow band, then you can, then the halter can kind of take over that wing steering muscle. And outside of that, the wing is really doing a lot of the work. <laughs> this also, again, connects with the kind of work that my lab is doing, showing that halter muscles can help um, bring the, the halter back into that regime so that you can control the wing for just even a brief period of time. Um, yeah, so that's just one of the ways that the kind of the morphology of the halter and wing kind of helps set up these, these rapid reflexes. We don't ask you about the redundancy if the fly loses one of its wing. How does it affect the, 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 the I don't know, functionality to behave? Well, if the fly loses a wing, then then it's just kind of it's literally grounded. But um, based on some past work on the hull tier, there's some idea that, you know, a fly should be able to, to detect body rotations with just one halter. <laughs> in addition, um, going back to this this issue of the kind of reflexes between the halter and at least one of the wing steering muscles, what you find is if you record from a, a, there's a particular wing steering muscle that fires every wing stroke at a precise time in the wing stroke cycle. And if you record from that muscle and you eliminate one of the halters, you can still get that kind of normal cycling that you see if you have two wings intact and one halter intact, and this is, I believe this is true on both sides of the, of the fly, which gives you some sense that, I mean, you know this anatomically that halters not only provide information to the wing on the same side, but also to the wing on the contralateral side, to the opposite side. But if you eliminate both halters and both wings, then you can, you entirely um, eliminate that signal. Right. Um, so, so, you know, obvious, so it, it seems pretty obvious that the fly needs both wings, but it's also a little surprising that, that the halter, at least the idea is that flies may be able to get away with just one halter. Now, having said that, the halter is much smaller than the wings. Um, and, you know, the halt, the wing is a, you know, broad, flat plate. And so, you know, it's, it's made of a thin membrane. You know, it's, it's, it's strong for its size, as stiff for its size, but it's still rather delicate. Um, whereas the halter is is rather short and stumpy, and in some flies, kind of tucked away and relatively protected. So the amount of damage that the halter experiences as compared to the wing is likely much, much less. Um, <laughs> so even though flies may be able to to detect body rotations and/or maneuver with just one halter. It's unlikely that they experience much halter damage. That said, with the wings, um, you know, th there's this work by um, a colleague of mine, Andrew Mountcastle, who's at Bates College in Maine. He's done work on on bees, where he looking at wing damage, and because with bees, they, you know, they have wing veins just like many most flying insects do, but but in particular, they have um, in this one joint um, a special protein called resolin, which is a highly resilient 
um, rubber-like protein. It's actually more resilient than rubber. And what he's what he finds is that if you take a bee and you rotate it around, um, and basically have it experience artificial wing damage, you know, the that joint allows for flexion that reduces damage because you can stiffen that joint and then increase the damage that's experienced. Um, so in the case of flies, you know, they don't have the benefit of this resolin in their wing. So they'll experience wing damage, you know, at the tips. And that will obviously, or uh, a sort of natural consequence of that is that now one wing may experience more damage than the other. And so the fly, that would result in, you know, kind of instabilities or could result in instabilities because of the asymmetries of the wing loading and the aerodynamic forces produced by the wing. But, you know, the haltier and the visual system and, you know, the fly is able to detect those kinds of differences and then compensate for them um, so that the fly can still fly straight, right? So that even if they do experience a fair bit of wing damage, you, you know, you kind of kind of know this from our own intuition if you just go out into the natural world and we see even a butterfly with a significant amount of wing damage but if you startle it it's still able to fly just fine right so there are there are a lot of ways that insects have um ways to not only just detect these asymmetries but compensate for them to to accomplish uh all in the behaviors that they're normally trying to to do if there is a damage, how to compensate for the damage of one of the wings? Is the same thing? Uh, so, uh, so there are a couple of ways that you can compensate for for wing damage. One way is, um, you know, if you imagine, you can imagine, you know, if you're flapping your wings at some amplitude, you can, and one wing is just basically effectively shorter. Now you can flap that wing, you, you can increase its amplitude so that you're you're getting the amount of lift that you need for a wing that size and what you can also do to balance things out is keep the other wing flapping at its normal its normal amount or you can reduce it so that you have things more balanced right um so and you can also control flies can also control like when so as they're beating their wing they're not just controlling amplitude but they also control like when the wing twists because the wing comes sweeps forward then flips backward and sweeps back. Um, so controlling that timing makes a big difference um, in terms of how flies execute some different turns. Um, so, you know, flies have a lot of different aspects of control that they can use to compensate for any kind of wing damage. Um, and what that, what that means, though, is that they have to constantly monitor how their wing is moving, right? And we may think of that as just kind of happening automatically and you know basically from the fly's perspective it likely isn't monitoring it and and actively kind of you know thinking and compensating for it is that the system has a lot there are so many sensors that can detect what's happening and there's so much um evolutionary pressure on you know stable flight and and basically like flight homeostasis that um, these things are just kind of naturally compensated for without the fly having to, you know, detect that it's kind of falling to one side and then compensate. It, it just sort of looks automatic to, to our eye, but there's a lot going on in terms of, in terms of detecting, you know, the decreased mass of the wing and getting, and, and, detecting the proper amount of bending. Because one way you can think about it is that is that the fly has a natural rhythm that it's trying to maintain. And if the wing mass is reduced in some way, the fly is going to change wing motion in a way to go back to its sort of natural set point, right? And so it's not so much that the brain is sending a signal, it's much more that there's, there's this kind of expectation, the expectation is not met, and the fly just kind of compensates almost instantaneously. Especially from the design, when you, I, 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 maybe you saw the work for Robert Wood at Harvard, he, the flying bee, I don't know if you saw that. We had him, I think, two years ago on the podcast. And what the question is, when you're scaling down the design 
in that small scale, it's very challenging too. Can you tell me the analogy here when you try to scale down everything, especially the fly? What does it take for engineers or robotists here to to understand the complexity when you go to the small scale, material design, and all these things that we discussed already here? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the robot stuff is really amazing because one of the one of the biggest challenges of going from you know even just like a bird scale to insect scale because think of I think RoboB is about the size of a quarter, so it's like really like a bee-sized robot. One of those big one of those one of the biggest challenges I re recall is you have to get to to generate lift at, at that size scale. You have to get to a flapping frequency that's quite high, right? And that's already a challenge for a design. So my recollection of the RoboB stuff is that they had to design a really smart system that where you can like kind of amplify power using like a piezo to to flap at you know 150 200 hertz right? so and so we've accomplished that goal but now that to me that one of the bigger outstanding challenges is with robo stuff which is really again you know you see it and it it looks like truly a robotic fly that's moving around the challenge though is how can you get that robot to control itself? And how can you shrink everything, all the controls down so to the size scale where it's not just overloaded with a huge amount of weight? Because my recollection with RoboB is that the way it's controlled, initially controlled was through a set of cameras that are you know, looking at the, the robot and sending control signals through a wire, right? And so with a flying insect, all the power and control is contained in a few milligrams, right? And so one of the biggest challenges is not only designing, you know, sensors that are small enough that you can mount them on on something that scale, but also, you know, getting your getting that sort of power density that you need to shrink it down enough so that you can it can do all those things itself. Right. And then and then the other issue that's, you know, a hot topic is is trying to make a given robot autonomous enough that it can just kind of zip around and do its own thing without needing all these rules from an external programmer um, or external controller. That you know that stuff is it's hard. I mean, and it it's it's funny sometimes when you're presented with a problem like that, you think, oh well, it's been solved. Obviously, a, a fly or a bee can do it. But getting to the point where you can really realistically manufacture some of these things is exceptionally difficult. Now, at the same time, you know, insect flight, studying the kind of aerodynamic basis for insect flight and just like getting off the ground, something that has a, lo a long, rich history. Um, but, you know, we have a, surprisingly, we have a pretty good handle on, you know, how these animals generate lift and get off the ground and from from that understanding to making ruby was really only like wasn't that long of a time you know in in span of it was within you know a few decades ish that we're making real progress on generating generating an understanding of how insect fly to generating robo bee um, but there's still a long way to go before we can really get to, you know, an autonomous micro air vehicle, but I'm excited to see where, how that, how that works. Do you think there's still questions that you still, you still want to, to get an answer for something still mysterious in the fly or other example in flying insect, it's directed to fly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for yeah, absolutely. There, yeah. For me, um, yeah, there's still a, a wealth of questions that are that are worth exploring because you know, right now we focus on focus on how the visual system and how the brain help control this structure of the hull tier to control different kind of flight maneuvers. But as I mentioned, one of the other rules for the hull tier is to detect body rotation as act as a gyroscopic sensor. But that kind of sets up a problem for the fly of how does it, how does it do both? 
right? How does it both detect by rotations and these other, these intro commands and how does it separate those two, right? Because they may just, the signal may look the same to our eye, but to the fly, those are obviously different. They can, they can clearly detect, they can clearly discriminate between the two of them. Or maybe, maybe they don't discriminate between the two of them and maybe we, but maybe we can see how they are different. Um, so that's one thing I'd like to look at. And then, you know, the other, the other thing is, you know, thinking more broadly, you know, there are, there are two things. One is thinking about other flies that like animals, like mosquitoes that are true flies, they have whole tears, but we don't think of them as being super maneuverable animals. Um, so what's going on there that makes them different? Cause the other thing is with mosquitoes is that they beat their wings much faster than fruit flies. So maybe there's what's, what's going on in terms of the tiding of the system and how everything is, how evolution has kind of shaped that system to function, um, is really intriguing to me, but also there are so many flying insects that don't have halteers, but beat their wings around the same um, frequency as fruit flies. Now, and some of them you might think of as being maneuverable or maybe not, but we don't really understand what's going on with, with the circuitry, underlying circuitry of those systems. Um, but that, but, and so you can see that, you know, me talking about this, one of the things that we kind of have to figure out first is what makes an animal maneuverable? Like, how do you define that? And then from there, okay, what systems are copper are as maneuverable as a fruit fly? And then can we understand the circuitry, underlying circuitry and compare that circuitry and get a sense of how evolution is kind of finding different solutions to the problem of timing in the nervous system, timing in the motor system, um, and it's, and is there truly a trade-off between stability and maneuverability and are flies an outlier or are there a lot of different ways to solve this problem? Those, those are things that, you know, and that last one, you know, I don't know if I'll get to it because I think what I think is really gratifying, but also very intimidating about doing this kind of work is that as you start to ask questions and as you start to get some results, you get sidetracked by these new questions that arise and that you're like, Oh, how, wait, this, I wasn't expecting animal to solve this problem this way. Now I want to learn more about that. Right. And so you keep following these threads, but you always have in the back of your mind, this original, those original like kind of big picture things that you wanted to try out. And so, you know, maybe I won't get a chance to try those out, you know, over the course of my career, but hopefully somebody will think about that or at least will read my papers and say, you know, he got this wrong or he, he forgot about this thing and I'd like to follow it up here. And, you know, I'm excited to see where, where it goes. Interesting. Maybe a quick question about the sound absorber, because I think we had a broadcast last year about the moths and how the wing, the good sound absorber and the butterfly, it just crabby sound absorber. I don't know how that's the case for a fly quickly. Are they a good sound absorber? I, I doubt it. I don't think, I don't think flies are very good sound absorbers, or at least the wings are very good sound absorbers. And in fact, one of the nice things in the lab I was in as a postdoc, we kind of took advantage of that because what you can do is you could place a, a near field microphone behind a fly while it's flying and, and use that to track its wing frequency as a measure of, you know, you know, its behavioral intent. Um, so I don't, I think fruit flies are sort of stuck with making a lot of noise as they fly, at least for their size, um, which makes them, you know, attractive, at least to some animals that can hear them. Yeah. So do you have moment of doubt in your career? Like, I don't know, sometimes you question why aren't you tackle these ideas? Because you mentioned about the trendy, sometimes we follow the trend and then sometimes, yeah, maybe sometimes we become something completely you not started before something like academia view it is just not trendy enough and they, and if you sometimes alone in this problem and then you, yeah maybe it takes a while to get attention for what you try to solve you get what i mean yeah 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 absolutely yeah i mean yeah doubt can certainly creep in and it depends on the project and depends on and kind can, can vary so you know you might have doubt about the initial stages of a project like is this thing actually going to work Right. Or will anyone actually believe that I can get this thing to work? 
right? Um, and then sometimes it doesn't work, and you're you're left thinking, okay, well, what what else can I ask, um, or what how can I learn from this to ask a new question that might have a higher chance of success? But there's also the thing that you brought up, which is you know sometimes you feel like the work that you're doing, either people don't understand it or they don't see all the connections that are being made, especially, I think this is especially the case while you're in the process of both formulating the idea and collecting the evidence where you're talking to people about work that's in progress. And, you know, sometimes people will kind of look at you with their head askew, like, huh, I'm not really sure I understand what it is that you're asking. And then, you know, after a lot of thinking about how to tell the story and it's complete sometimes those same people will come up to you later and say you know i and this has happened to me where people say like you know i didn't really understand what you were doing initially but then when i saw the finished product like oh i i see where this where you were trying to take this and where it can go um but you know you you sort of run into both of those things all the time especially as you meet new people where you know people are like huh I never, I never thought of this problem before. Can you help me understand why you think it's so critical? Right. And so, you know, I have to, I've had to develop that kind of muscle of being able to explain to people why I think insect flight is such a neat problem. But, you know, even in those smaller moments where a, a given experiment doesn't work out the way that you initially thought it would, or, um, or just like, the conception of an idea just isn't going is it it's like much harder to to write a proposal or it's much right harder to write a paper or just like you know kind of structure a talk uh you know you have those kind of moments where you're like i why am i doing this like where do i why was i so compelled to do this particular thing and it's just so in those moments it's just important to kind of take a step back and take a breath and i just kind of you know, one of the things that's been helpful for me is also having multiple projects in the back, in the background so that, and they're all, they're all sort of slightly different, but they all talk to one another. And so if, if we're running into a bit of a roadblock here, you know, if I take a step back, I can see how everything's starting to come together. And so it's not that I'm not so pressed for time or we're not so pressed for time to get this one thing done. Um, and that the, you know, the lab is, is not going to be able to flourish if this one thing doesn't work. It's more just like, okay, we can take a step back. We have plenty of interesting things going on. We just need to rethink this particular problem, come back to it, and things will work themselves out. Work themselves out. Inspiring. Maybe the last question for you. Well, the thing is you aspire to yeah, to know the truth about behind it. Maybe since you you study flight and these things, is there something you want to know in your lifetime? Like personally, just to know the truth about something. And yeah, um, so yeah, it's funny. My my graduate advisor was someone who said, um, you know, Brad, you're never going to know the answer. You're going to understand. And that was something that really stuck with me, and it seems it seems it seems like it, it's it's one of those things where. It, it sounds sometimes sounds like it, it's kind of repetitive and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But the more I thought about it, it's really it's really resonated with me as you know there are aspects of studying the whole tier and flight that are just just maybe inaccessible to me, right? But I think by having I like to have a very multi pronged approach to this problem, and I think by building kind of different lines of evidence with using different techniques different approaches conceptually it's really helped me kind of build a sense of what are the things i need to understand to have an appreciation for this problem um and you know there may be bits and pieces where i i, I truly know more empirically than i did previously um but that doesn't doesn't take away from those aspects where even if i know a little bit more I don't know the full the full answer. Those are still very satisfying, right? So for me, you know, for me, what I want to do with my time is, yeah, build build as complete an understanding as I can, right? Um, 
that leads the way for sort of the next big step. And some of those questions I laid out for you that I'd like to look in the, in the future, you know, I'm pretty optimistic that we can ask that sort of next step in terms of thinking about the halt here as a gyroscope and as basically a dynamically controlled sensor. But this other problem of how, excuse me, all these other flying insects that are out in the world are solving a lot of the same problems that flies are. I don't, like I said, I don't know if I'll be able to get to it, but I'd like to try. And I'd like to think that understanding how flies solve this problem will give me a, a sense of how it might be solved in like a butterfly or a grasshopper or uh, whatever weird and crazy insects I haven't even seen yet. Do it. I hope you will do it. Hey. Any final words like to say if you'll be listening? Do you have any final words like to say? Uh, no, I just thank you for the opportunity to talk to you. This was a lot of fun. Um, always happy to to chat with people about about the work. And I, you know, again, I really appreciate the interest in the work that that we do. Um, it it means a lot. Like I said, like those moments of self doubt, right? It's nice. It, it's hard to know sometimes if people are paying attention, and it's it's nice to know that. That is the case, especially, especially because my lab is only, I've only had a lab of my own for four years now. Um, and with, you know, with the pandemic and with changing institutions, because I started at UNC Chapel Hill in July of 2019, you know, there have been a fair number of roadblocks to just kind of getting started. Um, so it's nice to, to know that, that in spite of those roadblocks, uh, people are taking notice of the work that we do. So thank you. 